Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. New York City has not committed to close Rikers, yet. Mayor Bill de Blasio's tentative goal of closing Rikers eight jails would not begin until 2026 or later. In the meantime, he seeks to invest $10 billion to start building four new, quote, humane jails as soon as 2020. On May 8th, the Brooklyn Community Board rejected its borough-based jail. On May 14th, Queens Community Board 9 rejected its jail. Manhattan and the Bronx will vote on their jails later this month. These votes are a necessary preliminary step in the approval process for a new jail in each New York City borough, except Staten Island. The mayor's office reported state bail reform should decrease the number of people incarcerated from the current Rikers population of 7,000 to 4,000 in the new jails. However, altogether, the four proposed jails would incarcerate about 5,000 people by 2027, reported the appeal. Despite plummeting crime rates, the mayor has hired new officers, built new police facilities, and allotted the NYPD a budget of about $6 billion. Gross overspending on such violent work causes the community most affected by crime and incarceration to be over-policed and imprisoned. Michael Sewell's research and violence work shows that in the 21st century, only a minor percentage of police calls are related to crime. The majority are welfare calls, court paper service, and traffic enforcement. Jail closures have also linked to lower crime rates. From 2008 to 2014, violent crime in Cincinnati lowered by roughly 38%, property crime by 19%. New York City expects the City Council to call a vote on the construction of new jails to replace Rikers this fall. Closing jails is a more reliable method to lower numbers of people in pretrial detention and overall incarceration. Two correctional officers at the Curran Fremhold Correctional Facility in Northeast Philadelphia were indicted on charges that they repeatedly punched and kicked an inmate. Investigators charged that the COs beat the inmate even though they were compliant and did not pose a threat. U.S. Attorney William McSwain said that these two defendants, whose jobs it is to maintain the safety and security of inmates while in custody, allegedly violated the law in a brutal, violent manner. He added that the federal government will not tolerate this kind of lawless behavior. If convicted, both guards face a maximum possible sentence of 20 years in prison. On May 20th, Carlos Gregorio Hernandez Vasquez became the fifth refugee child to die in Border Patrol custody since December. He was 16 and had been held for a week in a Border Patrol outpost that lacked proper provisioning. He had fled Guatemala, currently racked by drought and violence, and reached the U.S. border on May 13th, at which point he turned himself in and claimed asylum. Along this same theme, this week we hear a talk entitled, Dying in Isolation, Migrant Bodies, Uncaring Medicine, and the Lethal Politics of Detention. Our speaker, Jonathan Inda, is a professor of Latinx studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. 
In his talk, he paints a clear picture of the detention conditions for migrants around the country, citing one particular example where poor medical care resulted in the death of a man who was being held in detention. Here he is. The title of my talk is uh, Dying in Isolation, Migrant Bodies, Uncaring Medicine, and, and the Lethal Politics of um, Detention. So this um, is Moises uh, Dino Lopez, a 23-year-old indigenous migrant from Latin America, uh, a Quiche Maya speaker. On August 26, uh, 2016, he was picked up and taken into custody by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, better known as uh, ICE, uh, and he was picked up for being in the country without authorization. He was detained in Hall County Corrections, which is a local jail in Grand Island, Nebraska, pending his removal from uh, the U.S. While in detention, Moises began having seizures, uh, and to his great misfortune, medical staff failed to provide him with proper care. He never saw a physician for his condition, he did not see, receive the tests necessary to, um, to determine the cause of his seizures, and his anti-seizure medication was badly mismanaged. And to top it all off, uh, through no fault of his own, jail staff placed Moises in solitary confinement, and this despite having a very serious medical condition. Now, in solitary, he had several seizures, the last one which proved fatal. So all alone in his cell, there was no one to catch his last seizure, and intervened to save his life. Moises died on September 27th after about spending a month uh, in detention. And the official cause of death was an anoxic brain injury due to cardiac arrest due to seizure. What I want to do in this talk is look at medical care and immigration detention and its lethal consequences and focusing specifically on the case of, of Moises Tino Lopez. And what I suggest is that Rather than being the beneficiaries of care, non-citizen detention are often the victims of uncare. By uncare, I mean lack or absence of quality care or um, sometimes any care at all. Now, sociologist uh, Evan O'Connor-Grant has noted that care is a practice that encompasses both an ethic, so caring about, and an activity that's um, caring for. So caring about refers to effective disposition, so to hold dear. Uh, to feel concern about, attachment to, or interest in. So it really is about how someone or something comes to matter. Now, caring for involves the practical activity of looking after, providing for, protecting, and sustaining someone or something. In the context of immigration detention, it is clear that there is a dearth or absence of both effective and practical care. And in many ways, it appears that the detention system cares very little about the well-being of, uh, of detainees, their lives simply do not matter. And this lack of concern is reflected in the grossly inadequate practical care that non-citizens routinely receive. And the consequence of this uncare, or what could be called uncaring medicine, is that migrant lives are imperiled with some, de some detainees um, succumbing to death. And so here I'm, I'm focusing on one specific case that resulted in death, but the lack of adequate care and detention is something that affects all detainees. Many of them suffer as a result of not getting care. They end up making it through and not dying. In many ways, they're, they're the fortunate ones who make it through. So I think the, the, gener the, the problem of death of uh, uncaring detention is a fairly broad problem that affects large percentage of the people who are 
detained. So here I focus on the case of Moises Tino Lopez. And I'll begin with a little bit of uh, background about Moises. There's not a lot known about his life. The analysis that I'm making comes from newspaper reporting, from a death review that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, did after his death, and also a, a grand jury that was convened by the state of Nebraska to look in, into the death. But it appears that he migrated to the U.S. with his wife, uh, Petrona, and daughter sometime in mid-2016. It doesn't look like they had any plans to migrate to the U.S. However, the supporters of a mayoral candidate they had, that they had opposed threatened them. So fearing for their lives, they sought refuge in the U.S. And Moises and his family settled in Grand Valley, Nebraska, where Moises' sister lived. And the, ton the town also has a vibrant uh, labor market. In particular, it has a large meatpacking plant. It has seen um, scores of new immigrants, particularly from Somalia and Latin America, come to that particular area. And then on August 26, only a few months after he had arrived in Grand Island, Moises drove Petrona to an appointment with immigration officials, and for unknown reasons, ICE agents questioned Petrona about Moises and their daughter, who were waiting in a parking lot nearby. After Petrona's appointment was over, agents arrested Moises and detained him for having re-entered the U.S. without inspection. So in, in 2012, during a previous stint in the U.S., he had actually been arrested by ICE, ordered removed, and deported. So his returning to the United States without document rendered him deportable. Now, as I noted earlier, uh, Moises uh, was detained in Hall County Department of Corrections, which is a local jail in Grand Island, Nebraska. And it is a maximum, medium, and minimum security jail that is owned and operated by the county of Hall. And it was built to house criminal detainees. However, under um, what is called an intergovernmental service agreement with ICE, the jail also houses a small number of immigration uh, detainees, like 60 to 80 at any given time. And Hall County has uh, in terms of the structure, it has dormitory-style minimum security units, medium and maximum security cells, and it also has what is called a segregation unit, which is a euphemism for solitary confinement. And because Moises had no criminal record, he was considered to be a low-risk detainee, and he was initially assigned to a minimum security dormitory-style unit like the one you see above. Now, while Howe County Corrections is run by the county, its medical services are contracted out to Advanced Correctional Healthcare, which is a private for-profit company headquartered in Peoria, Illinois, not too far from where I live, and it delivers healthcare services to correctional institutions across the country. At Howe County Corrections, four licensed practical nurses, or LPNs, work in shifts to provide kind of medical care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is also a nurse practitioner or an NP um, who is a med, uh, registered nurse that delivers on-site care about one to three hours a week and is on call around the clock. And so the nurse practitioner is actually the principal medical officer for the facility. There is no physician available, although the nurse practitioner can call some a physician that's in Peoria. The licensed practical nurses are essentially entry-level nurses. And this model of providing a medical care principally using entry-level nurses is essentially meant to save money. So this is a corporation that's in the business of making money from providing care to, to detain individuals. And one of the ways in which it makes money is by not hiring physicians and using nurses, uh, low entry-level nurses, to provide the majority of the care at facilities. 
Now, records show that uh, a licensed practical nurse, an LPN, performed a medical intake screening on Moises when he first arrived in Hawk County Corrections, and the medical history form that she filled out indicates that he only suffered occasional headaches. There's no indication that he had a history of seizures. Uh, and Moises' first week and a half in detention at Hawk County appears to have been uneventful, but then on September 6th, an officer conducting rounds in Moises's minimum security unit saw him lying on his bed, and he was in the upper part of a bunk bed having a seizure. The officer called for medical assistance, uh, and LPN immediately came to the unit to assess Moises, and per the orders of a nurse practitioner, she administered an anti-seizure medication to Moises. Um, the medication was called uh, Depakote. Now then, the following Sunday on September 7th, Moises received post-seizure follow-up care from the nurse practitioner, and she ordered that he continue to be to receive um, Depakote as well as Tylenol for headaches. Now she also noted, and this is important, that eyes should be contact, contacted about the probable need for a CT scan of the head and a consult with a neurologist. Now the, where, the way in which healthcare provision works is that anything that can be provided in-house is part of the contract that ICE has with a particular facility. But for anything that has to go off-site, so like for a CT scan, concept with a neurology, ICE has to approve this. Now in this particular case, the neurology consult, uh, which would have been with a physician who could have overseen his care, never happened. Uh, Moises did receive a CT scan, and the radiology report suggested that there was a possible abnormality and that an MRI could better determine if there was a problem, but the MRI uh, was never ordered. And so in many ways, Moises did not receive the necessary tests that would have allowed them to determine what the cause of his seizures were, right? and then allow them to develop a better plan to manage his, his seizures. Now, in the days following his seizure, Moises developed severe headaches and visual problems. He saw an LPN for these issues on the afternoon of September 15th, and he thought that the headaches were caused by his anti-seizure medication and asked to stop taking Depakote. The LPN consulted with a nurse practitioner who ordered that he be taken off this particular drug and put on a different anti-seizure medication called Capra. So he was switched over to that drug. Later on, on the 15th, in, uh, later on that same day in the evening, Moises had an encounter with another detainee. He reported to an officer that the detainee had pushed him in the shower room and tossed his personal items on the floor. A sergeant at the facilities uh, interviewed Moises and the other detainee about the incident and determined that both of them should be consigned to, seg um, to segregation, to solitary confinement pending a disciplinary hearing. And so the practice at Hall County, or the standard procedure, is to place all in inmates involved in any kind of physical altercation in, in solitary confinement until uh, the issue can be resolved. And these can take days, weeks, um, and even if you are not at fault, you end up in solitary confinement. Moises, was placed in uh, Unit E, and this is actually a picture of Unit E. He was placed in um, cell 205, which is on the second floor. Uh, so on the left-hand side, that's the, uh, the solitary confinement unit. On the right-hand side is an individual cell, and I think the picture actually is fairly generous in terms of the size of the, uh, the, the cell. They're actually uh, fair, uh, fairly small. 
detainees who are placed in solitary confinement spend the majority of their day locked up in, in the cell. Um, typically, it's about 23 hours a day. And when they're let out, they're only let out in the, to that little courtyard area. So they don't see any sunlight for however long they end up in solitary. And so people placed in solitary and tend to experience extreme isolation. They also have sensory deprivation and idleness because basically you're locked 23 hours a day in this cell with nothing to do. One of the things that research has shown is that prison segregation aggravates existing physical and mental illness. So essentially, Moises was put in segregation, in solitary confinement, without any thought to his fairly serious uh, medical condition, his, his seizures, especially when they didn't know what was causing them. Now, records show that while he was in solitary confinement, Moises refused to take most doses of his new anti-seizure medication. And um, when someone refuses to medication, the nurses fill out these forms. Uh, in this particular case, the forms that were filed do not indicate the reason for the refusal. And so given that not taking medication could lead to further seizures, it's unclear why medical staff did not intervene to make sure that Moises either took his medications or was prescribed a different one. And so this lapse, along with other failures, ended up proving um, fatal. So on September 19th, shortly before 12.30 p.m., an officer who was passing out lunch trays in Unit E, Moises's unit, was called over to Moises's cell by an inmate who was assisting with lunch. The officer saw that Moises was having a seizure. He was lying rigid on his bed, shaking slightly and with his eyes rolled back. The officer immediately radioed for medical and officer assistant. So when an LPN arrived, Moises was still seizing slightly with his eyes closed and mouth drooling. She administered an ammonia inhalant and performed a sternal rub to help arouse Moises. After he, he regained some consciousness and was able to sit up, the LPN went to the medical unit to call the nurse practitioner while an officer remained um, with Moises. Now the nurse practitioner uh, prescribed a new medication, Avitan, but it would not be available that day. And it's actually a very common problem in detention centers where medicine is not available when it's actually needed. Now, after speaking to the nurse practitioner, the LMP returned to Moises' cell. He was more alert um, by this point. Uh, he could follow commands and he could stand up with help, but a decision was made to move him to a cell in the lower uh, unit, of lower tier of unit E in order to facilitate 15 minutes security checks. Now, it's not clear if you look at the record, why Moises was not moved to a medical unit instead, uh, where he could have been more continuously monitored. As he was descending the stairs to the new cell, Moises vomited and had to be carried the rest of the way. So he was not doing particularly well. After Moises settled into the new cell, the LPN went back to the medical unit to call the nurse practitioner again. The nurse practitioner said that Moises should be sent to the emergency room uh, which is located in the local hospital, if he did not show signs of improvement over the next 30 or so minutes. Moises was not sent to the ER, though. The LPN determined that he was improving and that the right thing to do medically was simply to monitor him. So she stayed to watch Moises for a few minutes and then had to leave to perform other duties. He would not be seen again by medical staff until two and a half hours later when there was a medical emergency call from Unit E. So only officers checked in on him every 15 minutes or so during that two and a half hour period. At about 4.15, an officer doing a 15 minute check noticed Moises lying on his stomach unconscious with his face straight down on the mattress. 
he had suffered another seizure. Now this time he was transported to uh, a local hospital where he was placed on life support in the intensive care unit. He never recovered, however. Tests showed that he was brain dead. On September 27th, about nine days after being admitted to the hospital, Moisés' family approved the discontinuation of life support, and he was pronounced dead at 4.05 p.m. And as I noted earlier, the official cause of death was brain injury, which resulted from seizures, seizure-induced uh, cardiac arrest. Now, it is clear that there were serious problems with the care that Moises received in at Hall County Corrections. Uh, in many ways, there was a failure uh, to care. And here, I just want to f- highlight four issues, and, and there are others that I can talk about, but here I just want to focus on, on four. Now, the fir- first, there was really, there was no real effort to diagnose his seizures. Now, after the f- first seizure, he should have been placed under the care of a physician who could look into the underlying causes of the seizures. Now, in her testimony before the grand jury that was convened to examine Moises's death, Dr. Aaron Lind, who conducted Moises's autopsy, noted that diagnosing acute onset seizures begins with a good clinical history, followed by basic laboratory work, neuroimaging, and electroencephalograms. Moises never saw a physician, and no steps other than the CT scan were taken to diagnose his condition. If they had diagnosed his condition, they would have been better able to uh, to take the steps necessary to manage it better. Now, second, there is also a clear breakdown in the staff's management of Moises's medication. Now, given the potentially severe consequences of failing to take anti-seizure medication, someone should have intervened when he stopped taking um, Keppra. The nurses knew, at least the LPNs knew, that he was not taking it, but no one really intervened and did anything to find out what, why he was not taking it. And so in, in many ways, that's a, that's a serious uh, problem. And I think one of the issues that has been pointed out by the, the review, the death review that I conducted was that there was actually, there, there's basically a shortage of staff at Hall County. The four nurses are not adequately able to provide care in that facility. Now, the third issue is that the placement of a detainee with serious medical illness in solitary confinement is highly dangerous. In Moises' case, if he had been in his initial unit, the dormitory-style unit, or in the medical unit when the second and third seizures occur, another inmate or medical personnel would have likely noticed the seizures when they began and could could have alerted others or taken appropriate steps to intervene early. But in solitary, where Moises was alone in his cell, with guards only checking on him intermittently, his seizures were not likely caught early enough, and certainly not the last one. Dr. Lind also noted in her grand jury testimony that Moises's cardiac arrest definitely could have been triggered by the seizure. She notes, and here's a, it's a quote, I don't know how long that final seizure period was, but you can have cardiac arrest associated with it, especially in prolonged seizure states. So it appears that Moises had a prolonged seizure state that nobody caught early enough, and that seizure state induced the heart attack and then eventually brain death. Finally, there's also the question of whether or not the licensed practical nurse um, had the professional qualifications to make decisions to not send Moises to the emergency room after his second seizure. Uh, She made a medical decision. It's a question. There's been questions raised about whether or not 
practical nurses have the training to make that kind of decision or that kind of decision should be made by uh, someone who has more professional qualifications. Now, put together, these and other failures uh, proved deadly. If Moises had received proper care, he would likely still be alive today. The death of Moises Tino Lopez in immigration detention needs to be understood in the context of the pervasive criminalization and heavy policing of immigrants. Since the early 1990s, uh, the country has witnessed rather strong waves of anti-immigrant sentiment, and this is a trend that has only intensified during the presidency of Donald Trump. So from social scientists, immigration officials, and policy analysts, to immigration reform organizations, and the public at large, it has been very common for individuals and groups to cast undocumented migrants, uh, typically imagined as Mexican and now increasing also as Central American, it has been typically to cast them as criminals who endanger the well-being of the general population and imperil the security of the nation. Now, given this construction of undocumented immigrants as, as threats to individual and collective life, the measures employed to govern them have been extremely exclusionary and punitive. So in many ways, the fashioning of undocumented immigrants, as well as other non-citizens as undesirables, has given rise to numerous measures to keep them out of the country and also to expel those already inside the social body. So to keep people out of the country, what we have witnessed is the fairly intense militarization of the border. This includes the construction of walls, the uh, building of uh, stadium-style lights, across the border, uh, unmanned aerial surveillance, and so on and so forth. Now, in this particular image on the left-hand side, what you see, that's the U.S. military, which has been helping uh, with border policing over the last year or so, I think. One of the things they've been doing is that they've been installing barbed wire along sections of the fence. And then on the right-hand side, you see an unmanned aerial surveillance. But in particular sections of the border, kind of the, the kind of surveillance that you see is, is fairly intense with not only the, uh, the walls, but also large amounts of personnel patrolling the border, infra, all kinds of surveillance devices, and so on and so forth. Now, and uh, to expel those already inside the country, what we have seen is a rise in workplace and individual household raids, and also the development of strong cooperation between local police and immigration enforcement. So on this image, so on the left-hand side, what you have is actually a, a raid that took place within the last few weeks. It was a raid at CVE Technology Inc. in Allen, Texas, and they arrested 280 unauthorized immigrant workers. And this, this is, um, I think, the largest raid um, since 10 years ago. So during the George W. Bush administration, the, ra the workplace raids were fairly common. It was one of his, his tactics. They essentially ceased during the Obama administration, and the Trump administration has brought them uh, back. On the right-hand side, um, that's a, a, a raid of an individual home. So what happens is that typically they identify someone who's deportable. Uh, ICE goes to their address, and once there, they arrest anyone who with any regular immigration status. Those have been common since the Bush administration, and they continued on through the Obama administration and, and until now. One of the other significant things in terms of the interior policing, there's since the Bush administration, there's been fairly strong cooperation between local police and immigration officials. So if a local police person stops someone for jaywalking, uh, that the local police can check the person's immigration status. And if they 
are deemed to be potentially undocumented, then they can be turned over to ICE for possible deportation. The logic of this heavy policing, both at the border and in the interior of the U.S., is that since the undocumented are seen as societal threats, their exclusion and elimination is seen as necessary in order to safeguard the well-being of the collective life of the nation. So the repudiation of the migrant is justified in the name of protecting the life and welfare of each and all. But it's not simply that non-citizens are being constructed as undesirables and excluding from, from the nation. Perhaps more importantly, the measures that have been designed to exclude and expel migrants have been deployed in such a way as to increase their risk of death. So in many ways, the intense anti-immigrant climate has led to the development of a lethal immigration enforcement regime in which migrants' lives have been judged implicitly as expendable and not worthy of being lived. And this lethal politics of immigration enforcement is clearly instantiated in the immigration detention system. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.